Sometimes we see contrasting things that have come together by accident, don't we? Uh, perhaps you've been uh, on a, a tube train in London and you see a very well-dressed man, a city gent, and uh, somebody who's much less well-kempt sitting beside him and fate has sort of flung them together and there they are sitting opposite you uh, on the tube train. But it's no accident that these two scenes are here together in the Bible. The way the Bible is put together is not accidental. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John were their own people with their own experience and gifts and temperament. But the Holy Spirit guided and superintended that whole process of them recording what they had seen and heard. And as Matthew and Mark and Luke and John work out how they're going to put their material together, it is not them but God, the Holy Spirit, who is at work. And it's no accident then that these two things are together side by side. The artist Raphael, centuries ago, uh, has a single picture. I think you can see it in the Vatican today. And a single picture with both scenes, the, the glory of the transfiguration, and then the, the noise, as it were, the confusion, the distress, the despair of the scene at the foot of the mountain. I want to speak about believing today. The Lord Jesus addresses the, the generation as he has come down from the, the mount. He says to them, verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? And yet, and, and yet as we have seen, this father says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus has says to him, all things are possible for one who believes. So there's the title, I believe, help my unbelief. Many people, and you may have heard it said yourself, say, I wish I had more faith, or I wish I had your faith. And people refer to faith as though it's uh, a quantity in itself. It's a thing that you need to have more of. And people will say, it's my faith that has seen me through. Or, I used to have faith and then I lost it. And I wish I could get it back. But it's never helpful to ask about how much faith we have. It's never about the quantity of faith. It's never about faith as a thing in its own right. It's always about the direction of the faith. It's always about who the faith is in. It's not the quantity, it's the quality, it's the direction of faith. This morning, I want you to believe as the man here on the pages of Mark's Gospel believe 
believes. I want you to believe because in believing you have everlasting life. If you already believe, I want you to go on believing and to have the assurance of who Jesus Christ is for you every day of your life, whatever it might hold. It seems to me then that there are four things about Jesus that are presented to us here. Four things that draw us to him in faith. And it's always the case that if our belief and our faith is to be drawn to Jesus, we always need to know not about ourselves, not about how much we believe and how much we can believe, but it's always about seeing more of Jesus Christ. It's always about him. And the more we see and know of him, the more we shall trust and believe. So, firstly, what do we see about Jesus here? Thinking about both of these scenes, the mountaintop with the glory and the foot of the mountain with the distress and the uh, demon possession and the despair. The first thing is that Jesus' glory is real. They're given a glimpse, these three disciples, Peter and James and John, a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Read what happens with me. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. He is transfigured. His appearance changes. There's a supernatural radiance that shines out from Jesus. He's not removing anything. It's not that he begins to take off his robe and something is seen underneath. No, he remains clothed, but from within him shines out the glory of God. What Peter and James and John see is not a reflected glory. It isn't that there's a shaft of, of light that gives the person of their friend, Jesus, a holy glow. No, it's from within. It reminds us of something that the writer to Hebrews says uh, about the Lord Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 and uh, verses 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is, 
Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He always was before his incarnation and during his incarnation and since his incarnation. But whilst on the earth, his glory, the radiance of the glory of God that belonged to him was veiled. It was hidden. The Christmas uh, hymn says, doesn't it, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. What the three close disciples are given to see, they're given just a glimpse of, is the divine glory of Jesus. They hadn't seen it before, and they wouldn't see it in the same way after. Would you still want to say that Jesus of Nazareth was merely a good man? Or would you still want to say that Jesus of Nazareth was merely a prophet? Would you still want to say that Jesus of Nazareth was an icon for suffering people on the same level as Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa? The Bible won't allow you to think those thoughts about Jesus. He is in a category by himself. He is the radiance of the glory of God. This is the one time that they saw his glory, and it left a lasting impression. John writes, doesn't he, and again it's a passage that we read at Christmas, that we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. It was very effectively veiled. There was nothing in the appearance of the Lord Jesus as a child and a teenager and then as a man. There was nothing to mark him out as being special or different. He was found in appearance as a man. There were some that asked the question of, of Jesus. They say to him, you're not, you're not yet 50 years old, and yet you say that you saw uh, Abraham. Perhaps there was uh, premature agedness about him, if anything, but nothing to suggest, to look at, that he was the radiance of God's glory. And here on the mountain of transfiguration is this wonderful drawing back, just for a glimpse, just a moment, a drawing back of the curtain. And we understand, don't we, why in verse 6, it says that they were terrified. The account in Luke's gospel implies that all this took place at night, and perhaps that was extra terrifying, the, the shining of the radiance, the sheer brightness of the glory of God that they saw in front of them in the person 
of Jesus. And yet, it was, it proved to be a tremendous reassurance to the disciples. It showed them that the one for whom they had forsaken all things, the one to whom they'd committed their entire lives, was indeed exactly who he always said he was, the Messiah. Peter, uh, years later, he is thinking back to that experience on the, the mountaintop to Peter chapter 1. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. A glimpse then of the glory of Jesus that would be revealed. A glimpse of who he really was. The problem is for us that the glory of the Lord Jesus is something that can feel rather remote. And hence the reminder of the passage that the glory of Jesus, though hidden, is real. Years ago, in fact, it was December 1980, and um, I went on my first and last helicopter trip. And uh, you could get a helicopter from Penzance, where I grew up, to the Isles of Scilly. And uh, it was the time of year when a helicopter trip, although it was more expensive, was much more attractive than taking the boat for two and a half hours over a fairly choppy sea. So I took the helicopter to go to the Isles of Scilly, and it's a 20-minute flight. It was a grim day, a really grey, cold, wet December day. It was raining hard, and the wind was blowing. And in the helicopter then, as it began to take off, and you felt it uh, swing rather alarmingly, and then it turned to find its uh, direction, and uh, gradually then it would have gained height. And it wasn't very long before it gained enough height that all of a sudden I was ushered into a completely different world. All of a sudden it was bright. All of a sudden there was a, a carpet, as it were, of white cotton wool uh, underneath. And the sun blazing in a, an almost too bright blue sky. And that was true for about 10 minutes. And then uh, at the other end, then reaching St. Mary's uh, heliport on the Isles of Scilly, the helicopter descended, and uh, there we were back to the wet, uh, grim, cold greyness of uh, a December morning. It's like that, isn't it, with the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't deny that it's shining. Only a fool 
would say that the sun isn't shining. But we are covered by a veil at the moment, a veil, as it were, of cloud. We don't yet see Jesus as he will be revealed. And yet, we have his word. And the Bible is very clear that actually we're in a better position than Peter and James and John, dazzled as they were by the radiance of the glory that belonged to Jesus as the Son of God. And yet we, coming to Jesus, believing in him, God does something wonderful for us as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us that when we believe on the moment of conversion, what happens is that God shines into our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so God does and can reveal his normally veiled glory. And we can see who the Lord Jesus is. So his glory is real. Though it's yet to be revealed in its full extent when he comes again, his glory is real. And though often veiled to us because of being in the world and because we are so limited in our understanding and so preoccupied with the world around us, the glory of Christ that Peter and James and John saw is real. And then secondly, the thing that draws us to Jesus is that he is sufficient He's sufficient for us on his own. We need nothing apart from him. We noticed, didn't we, when we read how that on the mountaintop, uh, two figures appeared alongside Jesus. Verse 4, Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Elijah and Moses, the uh, prophets represented by Elijah, the law represented by Moses, these two great men in their times. Luke tells us that what they were talking about with Jesus was his impending sufferings and death at Jerusalem. Peter is extremely afraid, but also very excited and says uh, in verse 5, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And it says he didn't know what to say. That was his instinct. Let's celebrate almost. As normal, as often with, with Peter, uh, it's a wrong-headed uh, reaction. And God himself speaks from heaven to correct Peter. It's almost as though uh, Peter would equate Jesus with Moses and Elijah. It's as though Peter is saying, oh, 
let's have a holy huddle. But the voice then comes, doesn't it, in verse 7. The voice that uh, comes from the cloud and overshadowed them. Uh, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. There's a rebuke there for Peter. As though to say, never mind Moses and Elijah. This is my son. Everything now has reached its culmination. You need no one and nothing else. It's Jesus only. The gospel message that we preach is very clear. It's exclusively Jesus that saves. It's exclusively his merit upon which God accepts the sinner. It isn't Jesus plus anything or anyone else. It isn't Jesus and the merit of Mary and her prayers. It isn't Jesus plus the merit of the saints. It isn't Jesus and my good works. It isn't even Jesus and my faith. It isn't Jesus plus my volunteering for charity. It's none but Jesus. It is telling, isn't it, that um, in verse 8, after the voice from heaven, suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So there's the voice and then there's the, the vision. Moses and Elijah have gone. It's only Jesus. And to be saved, there's only one person that you must look to and is not yourself and is not even your closest friends, parents, children, it's Jesus only. The Jesus who is this Lord of glory. And then thirdly, the thing that draws out our faith to Jesus, his sheer power, his authority, if you like. We notice that he has authority over demons. Verse 19, let's read that uh, again. They brought, sorry, verse 20, they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. There's the, the rage, but the impotent rage of this evil spirit. As soon as The boy with the evil spirit is brought into the presence of Jesus. There is this tantrum, this rage. He knows he must obey, but he's not happy about it. Uh, Like a child uh, in a tantrum, in a rage, throwing aside its toy when the parent uh, calls him or her. The word of Jesus is something that the demons have to obey. And Jesus cuts through the 
arguments and the confusion, the, the failure, the, the disciples uh, have not been able to help this poor boy. They've not been able to cast out uh, the demon. Jesus, by a word, uh, summons the case to him and then by a word deals with the problem. It's striking, isn't it, that in verse 21, Jesus doesn't immediately uh, perform the casting out of the evil spirit. He talks to the Father and gives the Father uh, the opportunity to describe exactly how much despair has gripped him because of the effect the evil spirit has on his son. And he says there at the end of verse 22, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. There's the authority then of the Lord Jesus as he simply and without fanfare says, verse 25, to the unclean spirit, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. It seems to me that the scene of this father and his son with an unclean spirit and the failure of the disciples and the arguments of the scribes and perhaps they were mocking the disciples because of their failure. That whole scene is the world, is our world in miniature, full of disorder and despair. I would say that the activity of, of evil spirits, of demons, is much more limited now than it was in the time of the Lord Jesus. But still, ultimately, the Bible assures us it is the prince of the power of the air. It is the devil that is still active and maybe not directly now as he was then, but indirectly bringing about this disorder and sin and evil and despair, a fallen world, a helpless world in many ways. And what do we do if we see evil, if we see uh, a child murdered, if we see neglect of a child, we see reports of, of abuse, well, we are, we are helpless and the world is helpless. Religion is powerless. The disciples are themselves perplexed. And into that, Jesus says, bring him to me, bring him to me. His words carry authority. I command you, he says to the demon, come out of him and never enter him again. The Lord Jesus has authority. He has power. His word saves. His word brings peace. And then lastly, 
the thing that draws us to, to Jesus believing is His grace. And we see this in at least two respects in the, the passage that, uh, that we have read. In a sense, the very uh, setting together of these two scenes shows us the condescension and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that a glimpse of his glory should remind us that he, he turned his back on glory. He turned his back on that realm where he was worshipped ceaselessly by the angels and enjoyed the harmony of heaven. He turned his back on that and came into a world of sin and shame and suffering. Nothing obliged him to come except the obligation of his own nature, the obligation of the grace of God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The Lord of glory, but he comes into this world of such confusion and such sin and despair and grief. But though his glory is veiled, yet he has authority by a word to forgive sin, to deal with guilt, to bring us to God. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see it secondly in the the way that our Saviour deals with this poor man, with the uh, afflicted son. Some, uh, one writer has said, the Lord answers the man not according to the poverty of the asking, but according to the riches of his grace. The Lord Jesus has, I suppose, an implied uh, rebuke for the man, doesn't he? Uh, when the man says, if you can do anything, verse 22, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. It's a, a trembling faith. It's a tiny faith, a mustard seed. It's a tentative faith. The man isn't wholly sure. I believe, he says, help my unbelief. Help me as I am. The Lord answers the man and the Lord will answer us. Not according to the, the weakness or the poverty of our asking. Not according to the smallness of our faith, but according to the riches of his grace. 
It's always all about him and what he has to offer. Don't look at how much faith you think you have. Look at him, the one who was lifted up, just as Moses lifted up the brass serpent in the wilderness, and all who looked up were healed from their disease. So on the cross, the Son of Man is lifted up, and the gospel says, look, just look and live. We thank God that we have a Savior like that, the Lord of glory. There's no question of who he is, but one who is not remote and not so above the affairs and the mess of this world and our lives that he will not readily answer our feeble cries, whether it's a cry to be saved, whether it's a cry for we know not what, whether it's a tear or a sigh without words. The Lord has riches of grace. Our faith may be like a, a, a tiny weed that grows up through tarmac, that grows through concrete. Very tentative, very tender, very frail. But it isn't about our faith, it's about Him, the Lord. And my prayer today is that uh, you'll believe and you'll be drawn to this uh, Saviour. Amen.